Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Dr. Dustin Pendle, Dr. Philip Lancaster, and Dr. Bob Larson. Good morning, guys. Hey, good morning. Hey, good morning, Brad. Morning. Happy to have you with us and happy to have you with us listening as well. We always enjoy some feedback uh, on the podcast or potential questions you want us to talk about. We've had some good listener questions recently, and we've got a couple good things to talk about today. As we talk through, we're going to talk some about uh, small or localized packers versus larger packers. We're going to talk about moving cattle from or to fescue at this time of year when there are some issues associated with that. And then we're going to continue. We were able to, to capture Dr. Heron and Dr. Chelladurai again to talk a little bit about internal parasites. And this time we're going to talk about should you rotate products? We talk a lot about that on external parasite control, but we want to find out on internal parasite. Before we get into those things, I wanted to tell you guys uh, there's some upcoming events, and I think beef quality assurance training is something that's important for all of us to do if you have any interaction with cattle through the industry. Here in Kansas, there are a couple events in early November. You can find those. Dr. Tarpoff from K-State is going to be working with the Kansas Beef Council, but those events are going around all over the country. So look up the dates for your local event and try to try to make time to get certified or get recertified if you need to as part of that beef quality assurance program. One of the things that we're going to talk about today, and, and we talked about a little bit, we're going to talk about fescue. And I don't want to get into that discussion yet, but I want to ask you guys, the uh, Kentucky 31 fescue, where did it get its name? I'm, you know, guessing, I, I, I'm guessing Kentucky. So I'm okay. Gonna, well, so so okay. far, I'm with you. Yeah. Way to way to branch way out there, Bob. But you know, you, you say something obvious like that, and it doesn't always turn out that way. But uh, I'm going to say Kentucky. And yeah. I'm, I know I know the answer to this. So I'm going to see if the other guys know. What I know of the story. Oh, go ahead, Dustin. Oh, you mean where did the 31 come from? The 31? Yeah. I have no clue. Philip knows. When I know of the story, it was discovered on a hill in Kentucky in like 1931, which is where I think where the name comes from. That's the story I've heard. So if, if both of us have heard the same story, got to be true. <laughs> yeah, that's, exa that's exactly right, because it, it is uh, it was the one thing that was green and stayed green through the winter and likely because of the in the fight or the fungus that's in there that we'll talk about a little bit later coming up. But it's interesting where you, where you get that name. It wasn't that they tried it 30 times and then the 31st it worked. It was they found it on a hill in 1931. So very apt naming. Before we get into that topic, I, I want to talk, and, and Dustin, we've seen some discussion recently relative to, and, and I want to think at a, at a it kind of an industry scale relative to the size of packers and should we have more local packers that are maybe smaller and can process fewer cattle but are more regionalized or as the industry stands today the largest percent of our cattle goes through relatively few packers in relatively few locations so i wanted to get your thoughts from kind of an economist perspective yeah that's a uh... This is, I'm guessing it's not just been more, I mean, it's been in the news recently, as you pointed out, but this has probably been around for a long time, would be my guess. Bob could probably 
confirm that. But I'm <laughs> sure it's back in the 1900s, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually, they they actually said that one of the reasons that the Kansas Livestock Association was formed over 100 years ago was to look at uh, slaughter capacity and access to slaughter plants. So I, this topic is not a new one. You're exactly right. It's just, yeah, I just evolved over time. I, I wasn't there was actually. The then. I wasn't actually <laughs> present for that argument. But uh, to go back to Brad's comment, this, you know, big packer versus small packer, uh, you know, I think it probably has come into light, what, since March of 2020 with COVID? Uh, and the argument could be with the smaller localized packers, the resiliency, right? When we have a supply chain interruption, like we've had several of these, they call black swan events, uh, could possibly help withstand some of those shocks to the system. But if we think about the big packers, why have we evolved to that? Uh, we, we, you hear economies of scale oftentimes be brought up. Uh, you know, efficiency is another uh, term that you hear when we think about the, the larger uh, processing plants. And so I think you could pick, uh, pick a side and, and, and debate it, uh, but that's where, where the issues are. And it's been very, and it's been a very political issue too. In recent, we we can, and we'll put in the show notes. You know, the 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 hearings for the Senate and the House that both discussed this within the last what two to three months. And there might be several even perspectives on on alternatives because one thing that we we experienced at least in this area is really small, so uh, basically locker plants uh, that only uh, slaughter a few head at a time. Um, They've had a, a lot of demand, and a lot of that is fueled by a demand for some locally processed, locally produced beef. Um, and then you've kind of got what I'm going to call medium-sized. So enough that you're killing quite a few cattle in a day, but not at the level that the large packers are. And so when you say small packing plant, in, in different people's mind, they might be thinking of the local locker plant, or they may be thinking of a plant that's half to a fourth the size of the large um, plants. And And those are going to kind of fill different niches, don't you think? Or are they are they hitting the same niche or are they kind of filling different niches? No, I think they'd be different niches, right? So growing up, we would, you know, raise our own beef. We'd take it to what I'm going to call a locker plant, right? Where they would take our beef, process it. And then, you know, there'd always be two to three weeks they would shut down and switch over to deer, right? During deer season. Mm-hmm. And so I, I also agree that the small locker plants versus your uh, smaller, maybe you're calling medium, medium size, right? 1500 head mm-hmm. uh, processing plants, which, you know, recently there, I think in the news, there's another one looking at possibly going in in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've seen several of those announcements over the last, you know, 12 months where some of the medium size are, are looking to go in and capitalizing on some of the localized uh you know, lo- local consumer demand, uh, you know, some of this resiliency in the supply chain, et cetera. Well, and sometimes me as a, if, if I own feedlot cattle, um, by being a partner, so not just having a, another plant in, in the mix as to who I can market to, but maybe even actually having an ownership stake. Because my understanding is some of these plants at least do have some cattleman ownership they might have some other outside uh, ownership but some cattleman ownership and then so if i'm a, a feedlot producer it allows me to kind of vertically integrate in a way so that when when a lot of times it seems to me at least that when i'm as a feedlot producer feedlot operator uh or owning feedlot cattle 
when I'm not making money, the packing plants are and vice versa. And so if I have ownership in both feedlot cattle and slaughter capacity, I, I, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm risk management, right? Is that, is that what I'm, one of the reasons to possibly be an investor are, in one of these? Yeah, you are diversifying a little bit, right? So if you aren't making money necessarily one, possibly in the different, like in the packing sector, you could be. Now, what happens if you have like a foot and mouth disease outbreak or something in the entire... Now I'm getting hit twice. Now you, yeah. Or so you I was going to get hit pretty this, hard anyway. So. Right. Now, but thinking about the big packers for a moment, right? Some things that maybe the smaller or medium size can't do. Uh, you know, when you think about the hides and you think about the awful and, and right, getting enough of that, to where you can actually sell that overseas to some somebody who wants that product, uh, you know that's definitely a, a cost savings. Where some of the smaller or the medium size, uh, your packing plants probably can't, uh, they can't enjoy those benefits, which ultimately raises the costs. And I've seen numbers thrown out, you know, 35 percent on a per head basis, uh, by the large packers will enjoy over the, the medium size because of the offfall, the pides, uh, more efficiency, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like to me, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's, it's, it's like a lot of things in life. There's, there's some trade-offs. There's some real reasons to, to possibly see some value in these medium-sized plants. Uh, it just gives you know, the, the industry a little more um, capacity in more places and things like that. The negative is, and, and it allows maybe some more opportunity to have a bigger ownership stake if I'm a producer and want to invest. The negative is, uh, well, now I've, I've exposed myself to another business's risk, not just my risk. And maybe that, uh, that, that the trade-off in, in resiliency is a trade with efficiency. And so some pluses and some minuses or how would you look at it? Yeah, no, I'd say there's, I mean, it's going to be trade-offs, right? If you go to small, I mean, it's going to be a function of, of, of the demand, local demand, you know, when you can say, Hey, I produce this raised and processed locally. Uh, what kind of demand is that? I mean, is there a demand for those products? Uh, even politically, is there, you know, from a small versus a big packer, is that support going to be there as well? Even some of these new smaller or medium-sized plants that are being built today, the technology that they can invest, whereas some of the older, larger packing plants, they might not be able to enjoy some of that technological advances we've seen in time, which could actually reduce some of the costs. But post-COVID, we've also started seeing some of the discussions, at least some of the big packers are looking at investing in automation, right? Because one of the issues we're seeing, and this is going to be true for any size packer is labor. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so if you can automate that, which again, some of these newer, smaller, medium sized plants, maybe they can incorporate some of this automation as they build the plants to where they can enjoy some of those cost savings from a, a labor perspective as an example. That's the challenge, right? It's a, it's still a commodity business, even though we're producing a quality product, it's going to be driven by relatively low margins. So efficiency is going to be something that's really important to manage as you go through that process. So we'll keep that we'll keep that discussion going. And I think some good points on on both sides there. Just be aware of what's happening in, maybe in your area and nationally to keep abreast of new developments in that area. I want to shift topics. And, and Philip, we talked a little bit and we've got a few minutes to kind of visit about 
We've talked some before about fescue, which is a cool season grass. We talked at the open of Kentucky 31, and, and the thing that made it stay green was there's an endophyte in that fescue, which makes it more drought tolerant, which makes it more tolerant of, of heat, even as a cool season grass, and may produce a little better. However, that endophyte, the effect that it has on cattle is it can cause uh, differences in blood flow to the peripheries or to the hooves, to the tails, to the ears, which as you can imagine in the summer, you want that blood flowing out there so they don't get so so hot and you can have heat. In the winter, you want that blood flowing out there so that we don't have cold or frostbite in those areas. So there's some detrimental aspects of fescue, but I wanted to visit with you a little bit about um, some of the fescue challenges that we may face when we move cattle that maybe aren't used to it onto fescue pastures? You, you know, if you look at the, the data from a long time, and I'll say a long time ago, you know, 30, 40 years ago, we had a lot of challenges with cattle being able to reproduce and calves to grow well on fescue. But over time, we have selected animals in those environments that are more adapted and more tolerant of that endophyte toxin. So we don't see those challenges as much. But when we move animals from areas that don't have fescue to a fescue pasture, then we're going to see some of those challenges again because those animals are not adapted. We have not selected for animals that are tolerant of the endophyte toxin. And so that can be a real challenge. Yeah, it, it, you know, I can use my own personal experience. I was, I was a veterinarian in Missouri for a while, and, and the worst cases I saw um, were when we had, you know, one was a group of heifers came out of Florida and were brought up to Missouri on some fescue pasture. And again, the, the local cattle handled it pretty well, but those, those cattle that were brought in looked really rough. I, you know, rough hair coat, uh, didn't shed off well, didn't gain well. They were, you know, underweight, didn't, you know, so you brought these heifers up here to get them ready for breeding season and they didn't, they didn't do well. They didn't gain the weight they needed to really be good, uh, headed into the breeding season. Quick question here. You guys are talking about fescue uh, and we got listeners from all over the U.S. Are there certain parts of the U.S. where we see fescue in the pastures? Yeah, there's so again, it's, you know, it's adapted to certain regions too. It, you know, if you get too far south, it gets the summer gets too hot and too long that it, it doesn't produce as well. And, and so <clears throat> there's kind of what we call the fescue belt that runs kind of from central Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, south into northern Alabama, Mississippi, that area. And then from east to west kind of runs from eastern Kansas all the way to the Atlantic coast um, for the most part. Um, and so there's there's kind of a belt we call there um, through. So like Kentucky and Tennessee, Missouri uh, and Arkansas are the really the heart of that that belt. So kind of kind of jump into the you guys talked about some of the challenges What's the solution? How do, you, how do you fix it? If you bring cattle on to fescue and you see they aren't doing well, what's the solution? Um, basically, to get them off fescue. There's, you, th there is, there's no treatment for the vasoconstriction that is happening that's causing the, the poor performance and, and other things. And so that really your only choice is to get them off of fescue and provide some other forage or feed um, that they can then clear the toxin out of their system and um, and then kind of get them reset and then maybe adapt them to it slowly over time. 
Yeah, and I was going to kind of throw in maybe a clarification. You know, if you're a cattleman in one of these areas in the fescue belt, there's a lot of information, uh, you know, about how to manage that fescue well, how to graze it appropriately, how to, you know, inter interseed some legumes and things like that. And that's an important part for people that are going to have cattle there all the time. The, the topic that really came to our minds because of some questions recently was bringing in, you know, so again, taking some cattle from Kansas, Nebraska, someplace where there isn't fescue and bringing those cattle into a fescue area. Uh, that's, that's unique challenges. That's different than the people that live there all the time and the cattle that live there all the time. Is, is that kind of, because it's, we know how to manage fescue if you're going to stay there for generations. It's it's a lot harder, and I almost don't want to avoid it if I'm just going to bring them in for uh, a grazing season. Excellent, and I think I think those are good points. And like you said, there's lots of resources out there, and and you can be. We're not saying fescue is bad. You can certainly be on fescue all the time if the cattle are adapted. But what your point is, Bob, is it's that adaption phase, right? So when they first come in. And it's going to be emphasized when it's when it's hotter or colder. So we, we wanted to talk a little bit more about internal parasites. And we get a chance to, to visit with our parasitologists again. Last week, we talked about parasites, but we did not get through our entire list of questions. So we asked Dr. Cheladurai and Dr. Heron back because I know Brian wanted to ask Brian and Jebba questions on resistance and specifically we want to start out with a question and this is one we get guys should I rotate my parasite control products when I'm thinking about and here I'm just thinking about internal parasites just the internal parasites and I may start with that question should I be rotating my products annually I think the you should not be rotating your products annually just based on internal parasite. You may be choosing different products for different times for whatever management reasons you have, but uh, rotating products for just the, the worms that live in the gut, not, not a good choice. And one of the reasons uh, that we kind of highlight is when we kill off the, the weak worms and leave the strong worms behind, the strong worms don't really have any reason to lose that resistance. There's no fitness cost. They can still reproduce really well. They still make lots of eggs. And so we don't see any trade-off where they're resistant to the product, but they are weaker or make less eggs or anything. And so there's really no reason to ever go uh, to lose that resistance. And so if you rotate products without appropriate management strategies, really you just have a potential to get resistant worms to multiple drugs because they will not lose that resistance once shifted to uh, a new drug. And I think it's a different conversation because we do see that in ectoparasites and that's where that information comes from. But when we're talking about our endoparasites, we don't see any fitness costs or, or loss of health associated with res resistance. So when we talk about flies, we often talk about, I need to move from this product to this product. But when we talk about worms, you're, you're saying maybe not. And I know, Brian, you had some thoughts on that. Because, Brian, you've done a lot of stuff with antimicrobial resistance. Is this similar or different than what you see? Well, it's, it's funny because that recommendation exists with antibiotics, too, is that one of the ways that you can battle antibiotic resistance in bacteria is to change the products. 
but we see we see the same thing for in it and it's maybe slightly different where um there maybe is some fitness cost in bacteria but bacteria are really good at at getting a whole bunch of of genes right so they can carry resistance to a whole bunch of different antibiotics and it 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 doesn't really impact them a lot so i think it's actually really similar to what to what dr heron just said about um yeah, rotating products probably has pretty limited benefit, whether we're talking about antibiotics or, or dewormers. So you say maybe not change products, but you kept talking about management. Can you elaborate a little more there? I mean, can you give us some examples of what you're talking about? So, yeah, so there's, there isn't a cure-all chemical product that's going to just on its own help with parasite management or control as long as there's no, I mean, it, and you need to supplement your chemical usage with management, which might mean things like, um, you know, management of your pasture, um, the stocking density. So if you have um, a high number of cows per acre, you might want to decrease that um, so that your younger animals are not picking up as much parasites. But really, um, in the past, we, we've always said, oh, you know, you deworm your animals and put them on clean pasture. Recent um, research has suggested that that's not a great idea. So once you've wiped out your weak worms um, with your dewormer, then you are left with the strong worms. And if you're going to put them on a clean pasture, you're going to put uh, you're going to contaminate that clean pasture with your strong drug-resistant worms, uh, which will produce more drug resistance. And like Dr. Helen mentioned, once worms are resistant to a single drug compound or class, they are not going to switch back to susceptibility. Um, they're just going to carry those genes and go on. And with the next compound, they might carry more resistance genes um, and so on. So again, management um, might be stocking density, what you're feeding them, because we again want to keep those animals on a good nutritional plane um, so that they can fight against those parasites. And I think it's a good good point there that a lot of us were taught you deworm and then you move them to a clean pasture. And what you're saying is if I do that, I'm going to fill that clean pasture with only resistant worms potentially, whereas my other pasture had both resistant and susceptible. And Brian, I know you had another thought there too. So uh, Brian and Jebba, do you guys mind? So we, we said we probably don't want to rotate products and we're really talking about like a scheduled rotation, right? We don't we don't want to start with this class and then programmatically move to another class. What is your advice for um, rotating products when you think you maybe have a resistance issue in your parasites? When what do you do to go about saying, okay, now it's time to change products because we think the worms are resistant? Really, the best option we have is a fecal egg count reduction test in which we do a fecal float, look at how many eggs we find, treat the animals, and then 14 days later, do another test. And that systematic um, uh, test helps us determine the efficacy of the drug. And the nice thing about this is when we're talking about resistance, it's a herd-wide issue. And so we can run these on pooled samples looking at multiple individuals at one time so that we can systemically say, you did have an egg count that was you know, 400 and now it's 
zero, that product works. Or you did have a four, egg count of 400 and now it's 350. That product no longer works on your farm and it might be beneficial for your herd to switch products. But really we can only tell if you're appropriately uh, testing in a fecal egg count reduction. So test, treat, 14 days later, test again. And, th and that's a good place to get your veterinarian involved for a couple reasons. One, they can help you figure out that test. If you and, and Brian's question was, can I tell if my herd's resistant? And Brian's answer, which is nice having two Brian's, Brian's question and Brian's answer was, yes, I can do this fecal egg reduction test and maybe decide if I, if I need to switch products. I don't have to do that all the time. And, th and that's a great place to consult your veterinarian and also to be sure that when you switch products, you actually switch active ingredients, which is actually what they're resistant to. So not just changing products. So we appreciate having you guys back. These are, are great answers to some of our uh, internal parasite and worm questions. We'll have to visit you guys again when it gets back to fly season, and we can talk about all the fun with flies. We'll call that episode Fun with Flies. Well, thanks for joining us today. We, we appreciated you listening with us and listening all the way through. And as always, if you have questions, comments, or things you'd like us to talk about, send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.